the Dhamma is the teachings, and the Sangha is, is the community. And it's not just the monastic community, and it's not just this community, but the community of all sentient beings. And, and it's about community. And the thing about self-integrity, and I'll talk about it a little bit more later, but the thing about self-integrity is our ability to, to exercise that or to exercise that muscle of self-integrity is really important. It's really helpful to not only be in the moment, but to also be able to engage not only with ourselves, but with others. So I'll just talk about, uh, there's a couple of quotes that the Buddha made. Uh, one of them is, you yourself uh, should make exertion or you should make the effort. It says, do no evil, do good, purify one's mind. And we usually talk about one's mind and heart. And he says, by oneself is one purified, by oneself one is defiled. He who practices my teaching best reveres me most is the advice of the Buddha. So in other words, what is being said here is even though we offer teachings, even though he, he, he has there's the Dharma, he has the way, he led the way to liberation, we have to do it for ourselves. He says, see for yourself. Do not believe in someone else. Do not make someone else a refuge, but, but believe in yourself. So a challenge for us really is to, to take the teachings and be able to and our own subjective, subjective experience, be able to verify them. See, is it true or is it not true? Does that make sense? And so I wanted to start off but with that, but you know, he's not the only one that said that. I think when I was uh, reading, doing my research, and I think it's Peter 3.11, it is Peter 3.11, he says, he must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. So it's interesting that, that people or different uh, traditions are saying the same thing. And so when I talk about self-integrity, what am I really saying? What I am saying is when we talk about integrity or in the practice we talk about us well, let me back up a little bit. Next week's talk is going to be on there's nothing wrong. Okay, tonight's talk is also on the fact that there's nothing wrong because we already have Buddha nature or Christ consciousness. It's already there. And I like, when I work with people, I say to them, I'm not here to fix you. I'm, I'm here to help you find yourself or help you uh, experience your, your own divinity. And the interesting thing is, is I like to quote Michelangelo who said, that when people ask him, well, how do you create these great works of art? And he says, all I do is chip away to get to what's already there. That's kind of how I work. Not that I'm Michelangelo, but <laughs> that's how I work. Uh, it's not that I'm doing anything. I'm just offering some teachings, and it's for the person to do the work themselves and to see for themselves uh, if, if it's true. And so to me, this, this whole idea of integrity, and once again, to me, it's, it's this idea of, of the four, four dimensions of being. You know, we have a body, body, we have a mind, we have a heart, and we have spirit. And when I think about some of my difficulties when I first came around, like for instance, recovery. I'm, I'm in recovery from substance abuse. I just celebrated 27 years of sobriety uh, last month, two months ago. And the interesting thing about it was 
when I came here and I started meditating here, I remember Larry telling me uh, that I needed to see myself um, not as a recovering alcoholic, but as a person who is in recovery. Just a little subtle thing about not identifying with being an alcoholic or being a substance abuser, but just by being a, being a person who's trying to figure out how to do this thing called life. And that was really powerful for me when I came around and this whole idea of when I reflect back on why, how, how was I able to get clean when I've been trying to get clean for a long time? And what I realized was that on some level, I made a commitment, I made a decision to do whatever I needed to do to get clean. And the interesting thing about the recovery process is it was really the first time that, that it was brought to my attention that they talk about three dimensions, physically, mentally, and spiritually. And I started getting in touch with that. And when I made that decision, my mind, body, heart, and spirit were aligned. That's how I was able to do it. They were all in alignment. It wasn't my mind was saying one thing, my body was saying something else, and I don't know where my spirit was. Well, I knew where the spirit was. It was John Bollycorn or whatever you want to call it. But that wasn't the spirit that, I, that helped me, but I was looking for something. Definitely was looking for some kind of spirit. And so when I look at that decision, and I'm not really sure how it happened, all I know is that I was, I was living according to uh, principles, according to laws. And I, tell, I say to people all the time that before I got into recovery, before I got into this path of self-discovery, I thought that that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And what I will tell you now is it's because of that that I'm able to, to, to experience more of who I am, more of my uniqueness, more of my talent. And you know, just step, you know, jumping forward to, to about a year and a half ago, same thing happened again. I got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And I remember for a long time I've been on the, on the cusp because uh, it's to my family. It's um, something that my siblings have, my mother and father had. And once, once he told me, the doctor told me that I had diabetes, there was something about it where the mind, body, and heart were aligned again. And I said, you know, um, I'm not a diabetic. I'm, I'm a spiritual being who has diabetes. And that might, it's a subtle thing. And I talked to my, my friend, uh, friends, one of my friends, uh, Joseph, uh, he, we talked about the idea of, of being able to just change my diet. And that's what I did. I changed my diet. I lost 36 pounds. And a week after my first uh, initial contact with my doctor, I came back and I lost six pounds. And he had given me this metformin to take, this medicine. And I took it for about a day and a half. And I said, I'm not going to do it. And I, I stopped taking it. And he said, how are you able to do that? Nobody does that because I was able to change my behavior right away. And he was just amazed. He said, how do you do that? I said, well, I said, uh, there's something, something I know about me, my own self-knowledge, is that I have what I call, you people have heard me say this around here, I have what they call the AOF method of motivation. It's called ass on fire. <laughs> and and when, when I have the gift of desperation, I get busy. And things happen. And so the integrity is there. And, and what is the integrity? For me, it's part of it is, I mean, it really comes down to just being with what is, honesty. 
Without the honesty, I, I wouldn't be clean. There's a little page in there. I'll read a little bit about it. Um, from the AA Big Book. I think it's relevant because even with the diabetes, it was, cl it was clear to me once I accepted things as they were, then it was clear what I had to do. It says those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves. It's interesting. I forgot to turn on my recorder. Um, it said those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men or women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Then another part of it says, they are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. And, and to me, it's, I mean, that's what it comes down to, is when, when there's no way out but right there and I decide, okay, I'm gonna deal with this. When I take personal responsibility, then it changes everything. Does that make sense? And so to me, when I talk about integrity and I talk about um, dealing with all four aspects of my being so that when I do something, I'm doing it with my whole being. I'm not just doing it physically and mentally. I'm somewhere else. But my mind, my heart, my body, my spirit are all not only there, but they're all on the same page. It's alignment. And I haven't had that. I've had it in, in different um, situations, but those are the two situations that pop out that where it was just such a unity and such an ability, such a power there to be able to do what I need to do. And, and the, the practice is about that. It's about purification. One way I like to, to describe meditation when I talk to people, I say, well, it's kind of a process where you, you do a lot of things, but one of the things that happens is you create this container where you can hold or be with whatever comes up. And so if you use the salt test, which I call a salt test. If you take a little glass, eight ounces of water, and you put a tablespoon of sugar in there, I mean uh, of salt in there, it's going to be salty. But if you take, make a container this big or even bigger, it's going to be less salty. And so this process of purification, this process of, and it's funny because in, in this practice we talk about morality or the integrity piece, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And one of the things that I've done early on in program and in this practice is keeping the five precepts. Not to steal, not to kill, not to lie, not to take intoxicants, not to engage in sexual misconduct. And there's something about aligning with divinity or aligning with the laws or the principles that, that connect us to power that, that lead me to discover who I am that's real powerful. And it's interesting because lately I've, I do a lot of reading, and one of the books I've been reading and, and using when I work with my clients is a book called The Happiness Advantage. And in this book, it talks about the simple fact that a lot of times we have it uh, backwards. We think that you have to be successful before you can be happy. All the research says that you, if you're happy, you'll be successful. And it has to do with this idea of, we, talk, we call it right effort in here, where, where the idea is you want to develop skillful mind states. You, you want to do things that are skillful. And so when a unwholesome, like if, if, if uh, shame or fear arises, then there's a whole process you, you develop where you know how to, once it arises, how to uh, abandon it. And there's also another process where you learn how to, you know, 
help mindfulness to arise. And so, and when it arises, how to maintain it. So there's this whole idea of understanding that these skillful mind states, or what they call these positive emotions, they have an impact on not only how we feel, but our cognitive functioning. Because when you're in a negative mind state, your cognitive functioning, you, you get into this narrow band of cognition or recognition. But when you're in a positive mind state, it expands where you're able to see more options, more opportunities. And I will say that what happens to us often is you can't, we can't be in a protection mode and a growth mode at the same time. We're either in one or the other. And so when, and when we know this in football, because when you play football, the best defense is a good offense. So if you keep the ball, they can't score. And if, and if we stay in a negative mind state or, or if we're in the protection mode because we're afraid, then we're not going to be able to see the opportunities that are there because we're going to be, and not only that, but our whole physiology is adjust to just uh, fight or fight or flight. And so it's this idea with the cognitive functioning that you can actually uh, change your whole body chemistry, brain chemistry, and all that stuff. So it's really uh, as simple as just understanding that when I talk about personal integrity, on the one hand, I'm talking about living according to the law, the Dharma, or, and, and not just doing it because you're supposed to, doing it because it works or because it res resonates with you. And when we do this stuff, when I do this stuff, it makes me feel whole. And the funny thing about it is not that I'm, the wholeness is not there. I'm just not aware of it because I'm, I'm off in other stuff. And so this idea of just being still and knowing or just understanding how to relate to, to our situation as it is so that we can have peace around it and being able to experience the emotions, the whatever comes up, can we just be with it and, and learn how to work with it so that we're not trying to fix ourselves. We're just trying to be ourselves. Does that make any sense? So... I don't want to talk a lot longer, but there's some things that I, that I think will probably be worth mentioning. I want to make sure. Usually, I don't have notes, but because there's so much going on here, I wanted to make sure that. So one of the things about being an individual that's really important is, and, and I had this experience of uh, personal integrity, that has to do with knowing ourselves and knowing what our limits are. And I know when I had a job and I was working um, at this place and I was running one program and then another program came on and they wanted me to do both programs and part of me said, no, I can't do that. Um, I don't want to do that. And then whatever the guilt or this idea of not wanting to disappoint your boss or whatever, I said, okay, I'll do it. And I did it and I got sick. And there was a still small voice. There was a part of me that knew that it wasn't right for me, but I didn't have the courage to say no. I didn't have the courage to just be with myself and say, no, this is not quite right for me. And that one size does not fit all, and we all don't see reality the same way. So that there has to be this ability of me being able to understand, okay, given my situation, what is right for me? What, what is my stress limit? And what do I need to do to make me happy? Or what do I need to do to deal with a situation in a way that's consistent with who I am or who or my core values are. My core values are honesty, truth, and beauty. Then if I'm not living in the, out of those core values, then there's not going to be integrity. It's going to be a conflict and it's going to, you know, could result in disease or whatever. But the idea is really about understanding that each one of us 
has to understand who we are, self-knowledge, self but also how we work and what our limits are. Because some people, you've ever, ever noticed, some people can work and they don't get tired. Other people work a little bit, they get tired. It's, it's understanding your, your limits and working with them. And when I didn't do that, it caused me, caused me pain. And I've seen it with my clients as well. When you're working with people and, and, and they're working in a place where there's not integrity, where, where it's more the social mirror. So what happens is there's low trust because they're not living according to what is consistent with creating safety, like the five precepts or, or being honest or um, valuing difference. Uh, whatever, whatever the core value seems to, needs to be, when that's not there, there's not integrity. And so a big part of it is how do we stand up and how do we come from our place and engage with others? Because, you know, I'm, I'm glad you folks were here because I was worried about attendance because I know the uh, Republicans are having their first presidential uh, <laughs> debate. And it's probably a good thing Sarah Palin's not running. I wouldn't maybe... Maybe be less people here. I don't know, but but the reality is the reality is, is is this that on some level, what happens is when something is going on, there's a tendency to blame or there's a tendency to say it's not my responsibility. And in, and in my mind, there are a lot of times when when because uh, if we're going to change, if we're going to change the country, if we're going to change anything, it has to start with the individual. Starts with one mind making peace, and then one mind, and it, then it ripples through. But, but if if everybody's sitting back waiting for somebody else to do it, waiting for the ultimate rescue or the magic helper, it's not going to happen. And so, a lot of times, it, it has to do with us just really taking care of the piece of the world that we have, piece of the earth that we have. And and the interesting thing is, my experience is that we really don't have to go anywhere. Uh, to get a, an experience. It's right here where we stand. And the question is, are we going to say no to life or are we going to say yes to life? And quoting my buddy Yogi Berra, he wrote a book called uh, When You Get to the Fork in the Road, Take It. <laughs> so the question is, uh, if my self-integrity, uh, does that have an impact on which, which fork I go? To, or am I going to sit there and wait for Godot? Wait for somebody to come and tell me, or am I going to be ready before I get to the fork to know which, which way is consistent with my values, which way is consistent with how I want to be as a person, which way is consistent with, with uh, what, I, what I value. And a lot of times we space out and we don't pay attention because it's painful. That's my experience. It's painful to really look at stuff, the pain and anxiety the dizziness of freedom, or being around a lot of people and you want to do one thing and they're not even on the same page as you and you don't want to be scapegoated. So you don't say anything. You withhold. Because that's what we do. As human beings, whatever is pleasant, we move towards it. Whatever is unpleasant, we move away from it. And if it's neutral, we space out. This is what we do. And so if there's a danger, we pull back and we lessen our worlds and with this sense of our core we, we try to make it smaller so we can protect. And so there's always a withholding. It's, it amazes me working with, with athletes that when things get tough, instead of bringing more energy in and saying, okay, let's fix this, 
They withdraw energy, and then they become a victim. But the ones that, that are, are elite, if you talk like of Michael Jordan or Mia Hamm or, or any of those elite athletes, what they do is they look at it as a challenge because they created a sense of self. They created this ability to know because of their happiness and because they are in it because they are getting more, it's, it's more, they are so committed to results, to success, that they will undergo any difficulty that they have to go through. They will go through the fear of failure. That's not a problem. Because they're into the discovery of it. They're into this sense of wonder, this idea that I can, I'm, I'm, up, I'm up for the challenge. And they develop this strong sense of self-efficacy, which says that no matter what happens to them, they can choose their response. And they'll figure it out. So it becomes an opportunity, not danger. And so this is what, w that what we can do as well, is that there's a lot of room for growth here in the sense of just learning how to live with the way things are and adapting ourselves, because that's what it's about, ad adapting, evolving to what is. And when we don't adapt, we don't, we don't make it. We don't evolve. And we have to do that. And so what I see, and I'll just end, end with this, uh, what I see working with student athletes, what I've seen over the last six, seven, eight years, is that the student athletes I work with have a less of a sense of self, and they have been told, micromanaged by their parents or their coaches to the point where they, they get into a big game and they're waiting for somebody to tell them that they should be excited. I mean, it's really scary. And they sit there, then they go to a, through a, what we call a, a pregame where they're told what the other team is going to do and how to adjust to it. They're not, they're not able, some of them are not able to say, yeah, but he did something else. And they're not able to just read it and figure it out on their own. Because they're waiting for somebody to tell them that there's nobody there. They've conformed so that they've lost themselves. There's no integrity there. And so when somebody does something bad to somebody else, they say, well, it's not my job. I don't want, you know, avoid conflict. No, I'm not going there. And as a result, because there's low trust, they don't resolve. It's just telling me I'm out of time. Uh, <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't resolve. Um, Conflict, they avoid conflict, and because they avoid conflict, there's no commitment. Because there's no commitment, there's no accountability. Because there's no accountability when it comes time to the end result. I got mine, I don't know about yours. So it's all about me, I, me, and mine. And it's almost like they, they lose their, you know, their, their collaborative spirit or their sense of community. It becomes just, and then people say, well, what's wrong? Well. Unless you're vulnerable, you can't develop trust. And so when you're going to be honest or if you're going to be trustworthy or trust in things, you've got to be vulnerable. And that means you have to have a process. You have to have access to power where you are able to, to handle the disappointment if it comes or that you develop the wisdom to understand uh, what to commit to and what not to, how much to give to yourself, how much not to. Because when we don't feel valued, if we don't feel respected and appreciated, if we're not paid fairly, if we're not treated respectfully, if we're not used creatively, and if there's not some, some, some um, integrity where, where, where people are honest and, and, and people are treated fairly and that, that there's meaning for what you're doing, it's a value for you, 
then then it's just you won't give you'll give a little bit, but you won't give your whole heart. You won't be able to be coming in and like, yeah, I can't. I'm just moving expired. Yeah. Where do I sign up? It's not going to be like that. It's going to say, OK, here we got to go to work again. And then you get into the mind fr- frame that uh, this guy. Um, his name David Logan came up with a book. It's a bestseller called Tribal Leadership. And he talks about the five stages. And the first stage is the stage that I used to engage in when I used to go into prison. It's like life sucks. Second stage is my life sucks. The third stage is I'm great, you're not. Fourth stage is we're great, they're not. And then when you get to the fifth stage, it's like there's no enemy. There's no sword. It's like we're all great. And there's a sense of wonder and excitement. And, and this is what we have to deal with, that we're coming up and we're, we're analyzing and we're seeing that, that it's a community thing. It's not just about me. When I fix me and I straighten myself out, then when I engage with others, my opportunity to engage in relationship that's authentic is enhanced. And so I, I, I'll, I'll um, open it up. I, I won't talk much more, but do you get what I'm getting at? This idea that self-integrity is huge. I can't tell you how huge it is, and, and it's where our safety is, is where, and when we're not integrous, and the interesting thing about it, this is where community comes in, and it's interesting because I've been working on this book for a uh, number of years now. And even now, if I go see my Tibetan doctor, she says, hey, how you doing? How's your book? I say, well, I'm working on it. And so that's the kind of support I get from my friends is they, they can call me on stuff or they can just ask me about it because they're concerned. They're not, but where's your book? It's like, where's your book? I can't wait for it to come out, you know? What do you need? And so when we are in community, we need to be surrounded by people because we have blind spots. We don't see everything. And so we need to be able to have somebody we can trust that can say, hey, uh, you consider this or do you, under, do you see this, what's going on here? And, and it's real helpful. It's extremely helpful to do that or to be engaged in, in a community like this where, where you can come and be yourself and talk about this thing called life. Talk about how do I maintain my own integrity? How can I be myself so I don't lose myself? And I'll share one more story about losing myself, and then I'll end. Uh, we used to go into prison and work. And I remember going into this, uh, well, I go into prison, and I realize I go in there, and I'm not myself. It's very toxic in there. And not only that, but that's like life sucks. It's like stage one, and if you're vulnerable, you might get killed. You might get beat up. So it's like one amorphous thing. There's no individuality. It's one amorphous thing. And I went in there, and I... They're like, man, you know, I'm not myself. And then I started thinking about it, and then I learned that I had to do uh, metta meditation in my car for half an hour before I went in to protect myself. And then I remember I went in, and I was being myself, and this one, na- one inmate said to me, you got nerve coming in here being happy. <laughs> 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 so, but on one hand, he was saying that, but on another hand, he was saying, well, I want some of that. <laughs> and so that's what's possible. You can go into hell and still be yourself. If you know yourself and if you understand, well, how do I apply the practice? How do I go in there and be loving even though it's not a loving environment? It's very hateful. It's very oppressive. And one could say the same thing about how we talk to each other. I used to talk about this to the student athletes about this all the time. This self-talk is so bad. I remember telling one young lady, I said, the way you talk to yourself, if I talk to your, your, your teammate like that, you say, you can't talk to her like that, George. 
But you dog yourself, you talk to yourself, and that doesn't help our self-image. It doesn't, doesn't help. It's just like having, a, you know, it's like the Buddha said, you can make the mind your best friend or your worst enemy. Maybe you don't have to make it. Maybe it already is. But it's a way of relating to experience, a way to living uh, based on the Dhamma or principles or values, having core values that we are, we are integrous to. And so I'll, I'll open it up because I definitely know some people like to leave early, but I want to hear from, from folks and answer any questions. Okay? Yes? Uh, yeah. Uh, so you spoke a lot about self-discovery, self-discovery, <laughs> self self-improvement, individual integrity. Um, but there are other teachings that are about uh, letting go of the self, letting go of the ego. Okay. Um, so how do you reconcile those two? Well, there's, there's always going to be a challenge uh, in that, but if there's nothing to let go of, what are you letting go of? See, because if there's no self, and if you get into no self, because it's like, it's like that koan that Donovan said, first there was a mountain, then there was no mountain, then there is. So on one level, uh, you, you find yourself so you can forget yourself. Might be a way of saying it. Because whether you want to call it a self or, or not, there's a bunch of habits that are walking around in your body. <laughs> okay? And so who habits are, whose habits are they? If there's nobody there, then you don't have responsibility for it. And if you don't have responsibility, you're not going to change. So you have to really understand whether you call it a self or not there's potentialities there's conditioning that's going from one place to the other and the real question is how do you want people to see you how do you want to see yourself and so because here's the problem we get into we get into this intellectual stuff and we get lost because we can say okay uh, you know what's common well you know Buddha said you you know you can go crazy trying to figure out how it's going to manifest whatever that's not what leads to freedom is the wisdom of understanding how do I deal how can I be authentic in the moment that's the question so if you're not authentic in the moment then you got to look at well why not or, or what is and you don't have to just do it uh, and ask yourself questions you can apply the teachings to it and say okay well this idea of self-awareness okay this idea of self-responsibility this idea of um, self-reflection so I reflect on things, okay, when I did that, didn't work. So now you reflect on your intention. What was your intention? You might find out you didn't have an intention or you were confused. So now you understand right intentions lead to right thoughts and right thoughts lead to right actions. Well, it's like Gandhi said, your beliefs become your thoughts, your thoughts become your words, your words become your actions, your actions become your habits, your habits become your values, your values become your destiny. So if you're not looking at that equation and saying, okay, what are my beliefs? What are my thoughts? What words am I putting out there? What, what, what actions, what, what, what habits am I exhibiting? And so some habits, you want to have to be in the habit of, of being generous rather than being um, non-generous or greedy. You're going to be in the habit of, of being uh, loving instead of being hateful. So there's certain mind states, and this is, this is not personal, it's, it's, these are laws, that if you have a positive mind state, 
and you're gonna feel good, you're gonna be more generous, you're gonna experience less stress. Even if you're in pain, you're gonna have less pain. So it's not about getting into the philo philosophical thing, it's about you're responsible for that body you're in. And so, how do you wanna live? Now, if you want to just say, well, there's nobody there and nobody home, I say, you're right. There's nobody home. And if there's nobody home, then there's nothing to worry about. So when the pain comes, just act like it's not yours. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's, um, so it's a great question because we can get into it, but I don't think it's going to lead to where we want to go. I mean, we don't have enough time to talk about it, but there's people that think, well, um, that's why you have to see for yourself. When somebody says, well, you know, you, you don't have to have a self. Well, I'll tell you, I've had experiences where I've, I've had anger or shame or whatever it is, and I'm trying to do the right effort, trying to get rid of it before I experience it and accept it because there's a way of relating to it at, because I want it to go away. And it doesn't go away. But if I relate to it and create the container and just embrace it and then learn, okay, this is how George is when there's anger in the mind. Now that's powerful rather than saying, okay, I'm not angry. Just like me, I'm too cool to be stressed. So I'll say, I'm okay, but my body will be saying, no, you're not. It'll be migraine, it'll be some, some tension. and say, yeah, George, you might be cool, but I'm telling you, there's something going on. And so it's understanding that. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Um, I have a question sort of along the same lines. Um, uh, I was wondering if this is sort of an opinion sort of topic, but I was wondering if you define yourself as what you do, like you're the one that gets angry and snaps at your peers, or what you feel like you felt angry and then after you snapped you felt bad now is it which one of those is you or is it a combination or what um that's a great question i, I think for me is it's more about experiencing the emotion and and it's all how do i want to say this it's about experiencing things without identifying with it. So when I get angry at you, I can, I, I, if, if I beat myself up because I was angry at you and say I'm a bad person, that doesn't work. But if I look at, okay, I was angry at you and I have to deal with, okay, am I angry at you or is there anger in my mind? And you just happen to be the one that I projected on. And so if I'm able to just deal and understand the anger and make peace with the anger so when I get ar around you and something happens uh, first of all if I'm angry with you I'll apologize say I'm sorry but it, it's it's more about me taking responsibility for my relationship with myself and with you and so when I straighten myself out to when anger arises what is it saying to me and how am I going to deal with it or is it possible for me to catch the anger as it arises so that I don't express it to you and that's, that's how I see it now, is when I get, if I get angry at you, I look at, okay, what did he do to piss me off? No, I'm only kidding. But what, what did he, why am I relating to him? 
And when I look at it, it's because there's something in me that's not, because I look at it this way, uh, you meet what you mirror. So the anger, I'm not really angry at you, I'm angry at myself. So if I understand that, then I'm not the anger, but at the same time, because when I'm talking about be having a Buddha nature or having a Christ consciousness, when I'm angry and I'm doing other stuff, I'm not complete. I'm, you know, I'm doing something else. I'm not really myself, if you will. And so, but that's a learning for me to understand that when it's coming out that way, that there's an opportunity for me to understand how to deal with that anger and realize that when I'm not angry at myself, that I won't be angry at, at you. I'll give you an example. You ever watch the movie The Ten Commandments? No. Okay, so, <laughs> so this movie The Ten Commandments and, and, and Moses is a, is a feral prince and then he becomes a Hebrew. And so when he goes over and he's with the Hebrews and they said, there's no, you know, don't worry son, there's, you know, there's, don't be ashamed, you know, don't worry about being ashamed of being a Hebrew. And he said, there's no shame in me. So whether I'm Hebrew or Egyptian, I don't feel any shame. So you understand what I'm saying? Does that yeah. make sense? So I don't identify with the anger, but the anger is telling me something about me being uh, out of sorts and not myself. But at the same time, I am experiencing it. So it's not to attach to it, but to be responsible for it and to, and to choose to, to change it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Boy, you're asking hard questions. That's good. That's good. Anybody else? Yes. Well, actually, that's a great question. Hi, George. Um, it's good to hear you again. I'm not sure about this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, Israel um, has just undergone a huge uh, social kind of transformation. 500,000 people walked and are sitting and talking about what's going on in their society and about inequality and about a lot of things. And I was just wondering, and it started with one woman uh, who was evicted and you said, you know, there has to be one person who's going to stand up to start a movement like mm -hmm. that. Right. And, and talking about community mattering so much. So my question is, they said that that would be about 19 million people in the United States uh, taking action like that. Do you think that anything like that could happen in this country? Yes. Just that's <laughs> just that simple. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. Well. Yes. And I, I'm going to give you more. Actually, they have a thing they call morphogenic fields, and it's this whole idea when something happens, uh, the possibility it creates a template, and the possibility of it happening again is intensified. Mm -hmm. And so, to me, it, it's it's really. A question, if America is like me, is how much heat can they stand on the derriere before they decide to say enough? Like the guy said in network, um, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. When are we going to get that? But see, here's the thing about, about human beings and what I experience from people is that, and there's an analogy I like to use, is if you take a, a glass beaker and put water in it, and put a Bunsen burner underneath or a flame underneath it, and you put a frog in there. If you keep the frame, flame low, the frog will stay in there and, and boil. But if you turn the flame up, the frog will jump out. I think we're like that. It, it's like we'll, we'll chill. We, we'd rather go home and watch Survivor or watch somebody else go through the crap. 
but we're not so willing to step out and say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to make this my cause. I'm going to step in. I'm going to think about somebody else. Now, the interesting thing is, is when Hurricane Katrina happened, when 9-11 happened, there's times when everybody on the planet gets together and says, okay, let's do something. Unfortunately for us, we had a president that didn't understand how to, how to galvanize that unity and, and create something. So the thing is, it's really about how, you know, how many people pick up that, that, that consciousness and say, okay, let's do something. Let's, let's make a difference. But yeah, it can happen. For sure it can happen. And so, you know, I gave you a reason for it, but the fact of the matter is if it can start, all it needs is one pebble to create a ripple. Of course, in Massachusetts here, you know, we have the shot heard around the world, you know, during this, the Revolutionary War. So, yeah. And the same like Bastille Day, okay? And right now, something's happening in the, in the Middle East where these, these dictators are a toast. Anyone else? Come on, help me out here. Yes, you can pass it back. Uh, George, I like the I like the, the the path you've delineated that starts with life sucks, and ends with everything is great. I'm great. You're great. So I'd like to ask if you could tell a story about you know when you were saying that um, the elite athlete, um, he has she has no ceiling. Anything that meets them they're challenged by right there's no ceiling to their response right and that's what i think makes the difference between i'm great you're not and we're both great i think and i'd like if you could tell a story about when you first had no ceiling when there was a ceiling but there's this there's something maybe in your life or something that happened where then you had no ceiling and that's an experience that you had that you could tell a story to me about that's just like Mia Hamm or Michael Jordan's story. Yeah, well... We're both great. It's that somewhere yes. you got there, yes. and you know that. Yes, well, I talked about it when, when, I, was, when I got into recovery. I'll give you an ex example. One of the things that, that I learned when I got in recovery that I needed to be intellectually stimulated because, you know, where I grew up was like um, finding forest that you don't really want the fellas to know you were smart. So you kind of played dumb or you, you know, or you just kind of did what everybody else did because you didn't want to uh, stand out. So when I got in recovery, I realized that I was, I need to be intellectually stimulated and that if I read something once, I didn't retain enough to really understand it. So I gave myself permission to read it as many times as I needed to. And then I found out that it's what they call circular learning, that you go around over the terrain over and over, and each time you pick up a little something different. And so if you see my books, and it drives my friends crazy because I read a book 12 times, I watch a movie 12 times, and each time I go through it, I learn something else. And so for me, it was understanding that I didn't have to be a jock, or I didn't have to be um, uh, even a black man, or even a recovery pers person. I didn't put, I don't use limits. That's one thing you have a difficulty. You try to put me in a box, I just, I'm not going to go in there. Of course, you can put me in there, but I won't stay. <laughs> so, but, it, but it's, 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 so to me, it's, it's more about, so it was that. But also, um, 
so when I got clean and I just totally changed, turned my life around and, um, and all of a sudden good things were happening. I wasn't in places where somebody might shoot me or stab me. I was in places where, where people were, were more apt to talk about uh, pleasant things or, or have um, developed great relationships, actually be there in a relationship for myself. So it may not be on a, on a grand scale that way. Or, and then even think about it this way. Uh, I had a dream when I was younger that I wanted to be an MBA. And uh, I didn't let go of that dream to 1987 when Dr. J retired because he was my roommate in college. And I said, well, if I was playing, I'd be retired now. So I guess I can let that one go. <laughs> so, so it's like letting go of things and, and, and just saying, okay, well, who do I want to be? And I used to say that to people. I still say it. I'm still trying to figure out who I want to be when I grow up. So I can be whoever I want to be, not in the sense of just pick it, but just following my heart. And, and doing what I love to do and just making a commitment, yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm gonna do. And so it's, it's, and I find that between the substance abuse and the diabetes that I'm more of who I am because of that, because of my response to that, seeing it as a challenge and, and seeing where it's allowing me to change. Because when I was younger, I could eat pizza, eat all that stuff, I never gained weight. Now I look at something and it's a problem. So I adjust. So to me, it, it's, it's this realization that, that, that I'm free, that I have free will, that I can choose how I can respond or react to anything. And if I lose integrity, I always have the choice to go back and change it and fix it. So if I lie to somebody or if I commit an act, I can always go back and make it right and not beat myself up about it. And so, so for me, it, I feel that that by me doing this, I'm creating a certain energy, a certain vivaciousness, a certain way of being that's going to impact uh, other people and it's going to make this place a better place. So that's my role. So my role is not to be like Michael or Mia. My role is to be like George and, and to deal with the, the piece of earth that I'm granted and to, to hallow that or make that holy. That's, that's, my th that's the gift that I have and I'm not done yet. I'm still working on it. And to me, it's just sharing about going from stage three to stage four. A lot of the athletes have to figure it out. Like, for instance, when Michael was with the Chicago Bulls, he was definitely great. But in order for them to win the championship, he had to do less and then make it wear great. So he had to bring, allow the other uh, people people on the, on, on the Bulls to be great. And of course they had three-peats. So it's very rare to have three-peats. He had two three-peats. But it, it's, it has to do with, with uh, connecting to something greater than yourself and doing, you know, it's like you develop yourself, but then you don't end with yourself. Then you, 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 you go with making us great. So it's a cause for sacrifice. It calls for, okay, so now I'm not going to be the, I don't have to be the man. All I have to do is just go in and say, this is how I'm going to help my team. And this is what makes teams great because someone will sacrifice and step into the void and do what needs to be done. They'll say, okay, yeah, okay, well, I, I'm usually a shooter, but I'll play defense if that's what the team wants. And so there's a way of them feeling that, that urge, that, that sense of community, that, that, um, and it's funny because acts of kindness is a really good way to be happy. 
if you really think about it, you know, it, we're, we're wired to be altruistic. We're also wired to not be altruistic, but it's, once again, it's how you develop it. So for me, it's more about living this, uh, studying this stuff, being able to come here and talk about it, and have a conversation about it so that I'm learning from you and you're learning from me, and, and we're elevating the consciousness of not only this room but the planet, and also talking about how important it is to have integrity because a lot of people, especially in Congress, they don't have a problem lying at all. And then you got the media that just lets them get away with it. Because of the money, you know, it's because it's corporate owned. So, so we, so it's like when we have integrity, when we say no, that's enough. Like if we get 19 million people, we'll get their attention. But right now, it's like no. So yeah. So I mean, it's it's my particular way. And, and yes, it's me being able to to express myself. I think and share it with others. I think that's that's key. So I think we all have that ability, and that's what I'm trying to say here is we all have a divine spark we all have a uniqueness and one way of looking at life is for us to develop that and share it with the rest of us yeah anyone else come on y'all help me out here okay it's, I want to hear from you you can say positive stuff to us that's okay and if people need to leave that's that's fine too but I really like you to if you can talk before you leave that'd be great yes Put the closer, yeah. Is the is microphone on? Oh, you have to speak right into it. No, you got to put it up closer. I think it's off. Okay, why don't you speak, and I'll, if I have to repeat your question, I'll do that. So the question is, how, how do we uh, develop the ability not to react to things when we're really reactive to some things? And, and the, my standard answer would be more sitting is required, but, but the reality, and that is true, but the reality is, is to start to pay attention to ourselves in a way where you start to, s and the idea is if you can develop a certain amount of equanimity or ability to see what's hard to see, like the cognitive dissonance or whatever, and that you start to see that, that, like I was talking about Gandhi, that, you know, you'll notice your thoughts, and, you, and, and your thoughts have, or you'll notice the attitude you have, and that, that, that that's a precursor to your behavior, just how you're talking to yourself, how you're seeing things, and, you know, I don't like that, or, or whatever, and you start to see yourself you see how it arises and passes away. So you see how it comes up as a thought and then 
and then uh, action, and then you start seeing yourself, and you'll be able to, um, you you'll be able to nip it in the butt. I'll give you an example. When I was teaching in a prison, we'd be sitting, and and this one, you know, you'd be sitting there, and then the intercom would come on, and the correction officer voice will come on, and he'll call somebody to some place. And so just think that your favorite person that you hate, uh, the voice comes on, and they interrupt your meditation. Okay, so what happens is there's, there's the hearing, you know, the, the sound comes in in the air and then the consciousness is there and, and you hear the sound and then it's unpleasant and then, and then there's proliferation of thoughts that, that fall on, it's either uh, pleasant or unpleasant, but this case is going to be unpleasant and then there's a perception of what it is and then there's mental formations and it's not just one thought, it just keeps, keeps going, going and going. And so the idea is to understand that there's a way of paying bare attention so that you just notice that when the sound comes in, you're just hearing. You just notice sound, you know, that you hear, you hear someone, instead of saying it's so-and-so's voice, you just notice hearing. That hearing is occurring. There's a sound that's hitting your eardrum. And so you just notice it's a sound. So that you just nip it and you just nip it before it gets. So you create more space between stimulus and response by bare attention, just bare att attending to the situation. So if you have a pain in your knee, it's the same thing. Just notice the pain or notice the sensation, burning, twisting, burning, instead of saying my knee and then it gets into this identification to what it is and, you know, it's my knee and it sh you know, shouldn't be hurting and that sort of thing. But it's a process. But at the same time, it's not just sitting and doing that. It's also understanding that the morality piece, the right speech, right action, right livelihood, the five precepts taken uh, Refuse in the Buddha, Dhamma, and the Sangha, this whole idea. And it's helpful if you can generate a positive mind state before you sit. And so now, when, when that same thing happens, you won't be so reactive because your cognitive functioning will be more expansive so you'll actually see what's going on. It'll actually create a situation where you have an option here. You don't have to react to it. You can actually just say, okay, I'm going to breathe, not say anything for 10 seconds, and, you know, and just see what happens. And then also, when you talk to people about it, you have a conversation. Well, how do you deal with reactivity? Because a lot of us, we react before we know we're going to react. And so now we have to figure out a process where we say, okay, when I get in that situation, I'm going to react. So why don't I mentally rehearse or why don't I think about how I'm, I want to react to that and then figure out how to make that happen by maybe reflecting on it, thinking about it, maybe talking about the positive consequences of that or so-and-so. Susie does that. I really appreciate that. So you say, whoa, okay, that's possible for me. Does that make sense? Yeah. And of course, there's other variations on the theme, and then even though I told you that, you'll figure it out on your own and, and make it your own. But it's important. That's a crucial question is how do we create more space? And part of that is the integrity, the, the um, generating positive mind states, but also understanding that, okay, I don't feel, I don't like reacting. And then, you know, maybe that's the get to the point where you say, I'm tired of it, I'm not going to do it anymore. Of course, you'll keep doing it unless you create that container I talked about where you're able to experience it more and more without reacting to it. Make sense? Okay. Anybody else? Yes.
What's real and what's not real? No, no, it, it, it's, it's, it's a good question because, can you give me an example? Okay, so the question is, what, what does that relationship mean? What's the value of that relationship? Or how do you relate to people? Do you relate to people because you should? Or you relate to them because you want to? Because there's, there's something that they, they have that you want or you are interested. There's a connection there. Well, what is generating the need for that relationship? Yes. Exactly. That's, so it's, it's about understanding what's our motives, what's the intention. And, and, and the interesting thing is, is that when we block out parts of ourselves, we don't even know how we feel. The feelings are extremely important because sometimes the feeling says danger. It means danger. Or sometimes the, the fear is, is telling us something about, no, this is not right for me. Or it might be an interpretation of what's going on which we like to call, say in program, fear is false evidence appearing to be real. So you have to really look at it and investigate, explore it. And then you have your friends and other people who can, can say to you, okay, did you watch that? What did you see? Or what was your experience? Or just talking to the person because to me, that's one of the most difficult things is relationship. And we have to straighten ourselves out before we can straighten others out and getting getting um, clear or getting peace around a relationship because we're not everybody's cup of tea. My cousin, I have a cousin that passed away recently. He and I used to talk about our family and we came to the realization that if we weren't related to them, we wouldn't have any relationship with some of them. Not personal. We don't pick our family members and teammates, but we tolerate them. And so you can tolerate somebody, but it doesn't mean you have to deal with their abuse or you have to deal with them. Uh, and you're, you're not uncomfortable because if you're doing something you don't want to do or you're doing something because you should, you feel you should do it, that's not healthy. What's healthy is you having a wish, a desire, and then saying, okay, and the feeling is, I like this person or I really want this to work. But if you're saying, well, I should be a good person and I should be able to relate to anybody, even this person, and if I can relate to them, that means I'm a good person. Is that the motivation? You, you get what I'm saying? So you have to really look at what's the motivation? What is the why here? Why is this so important? Okay, is, is, yes.
Mm-hmm.